And Lord, indeed, we do praise you because you are worthy of praise. God, I pray that grace and the other Bible-believing, Christ-honoring churches in Santa Maria and the area would be about winning souls and making disciples, making disciples. Lord, help us ourselves to trust the promises of God and then help us by our lives to make these promises attractive to those who are around us, Lord. And let us learn the lesson tonight from uh, Matthew chapter 6 that we would pray so that we can uh, bring glory to you. We can live before an audience of one for your glory. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The School of Hard Knocks. The School of Hard Knocks is where you go when you simply have to learn something by experience. This is the school that is open from time to time for those of us who are unable for whatever reason to learn from other people's experience. This school is sometimes known as the Open Mouth Insert Foot Academy. On-the-job training is similar to the School of Hard Knocks, but is simply just one of those natural things that everybody has to experience. There are many things that we need to learn only by doing. There are some things you cannot learn without having lived through them by God's grace. Prayer is one thing that demands on-the-job training. In fact, we'll learn tonight that no one learns to pray without praying. I say this even though it sits right in the middle of the passage that we looked at last week. The passage there as a whole has the big idea, live for an audience of one. Now, it's not hard to see the relationship between these two ideas. Jesus here helps us, his followers, to look to what it looks like to live not being a hypocrite. Not to be one who pretends to believe that God will reward him, but secretly believes that at least some of his reward, some of what motivates him or her to do quote-unquote, godly things comes from those who are around him. This is how we're not to live, as we said last week. We live for an audience of one. We must live for God because we must learn to glorify him in every aspect of our life. Last week, we looked at giving money to those who need it. We looked at prayer and we looked at fasting. And today I told you we want to focus in a little more closely on prayer because no one learns to pray without praying. Now the portion on prayer that we looked at last week sets up our time tonight. If you have your notes, I have some blanks you can fill in. The first point is to kill hypocrisy by praying in private versus 5 through 6 of our passage says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, 
they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We learned last week that you might be a hypocrite if you only pray when you pray in front of others. You might be a hypocrite if when you pray by yourself, all of your prayers are about yourself. And we kind of changed that just a little bit and we said our prayers by ourselves need to be thanking and praising God for what he is doing in others' lives. These are a few simple ways of making sure that our prayers are not hypocritical prayers, but rather we kill hypocrisy by praying in private. Now, tonight, we are going to learn to pray by praying. We're going to learn to avoid hypocrisy by living for an audience of one. And we're going to, as our second point says, kill manipulation by praying in trust. Our passage is verse 7. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask him. Jesus here cautions his followers. He cautions you and me from misunderstanding the nature of God. We don't want to assume that we need to or even can impress him by our eloquence or by our many words because God is not impressed. God doesn't measure your relationship and mine with him by our words. He measures our relationship by our heart. And that is exactly why when a father said, I believe, help my unbelief, that prayer got swift answer from the king who can banish demons with a word. But you and I can't learn this lesson. You and I can't begin to take our very first steps in a life of prayer without experiencing God's gracious answers to our prayers. You cannot experience God's gracious answers to our prayers until you trust His promises for you in Christ. You cannot trust His promises for you in Christ until you put that trust into action by praying, by going to God and saying, God, I need you. In other words, no one learns to pray without praying. And you and I will live for an audience of one when you and I take time, when we push aside the other things that are piling on us and we push aside the things that we think we have to do in order to pray to the God who can hear and will answer. This is the God who promises us in John 16, 24, until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
My friends, that's your promise. If you don't have that verse memorized already, memorize it because this is your invitation to take this promise and go before the king, as I said, who can banish demons with a word and pray and get answers so that you learn to pray. You learn to live for an audience of one. Now, Jesus gives us a model prayer. And you're all familiar with it. I'm sure if I asked you to recite it, most of you could. Problem is we'd get five translations. So let me read the English Standard Version, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As we go tonight, we are going to see in what I am calling the disciples' prayer. Yes, you can go later on and you can argue and think about, should it be called the Lord's Prayer or should it be called the disciples' prayer? Well, I'm going to leave that question for you. I'm not even going to answer that. But the disciples' prayer is a model. It is a form. It is a place where you and I can go and fill in the blanks of what's in our heart into this model, praying along with the spirit of what Jesus' words are, phrase by phrase, and therefore offer a prayer that is acceptable to God. So, for example, you might pray like this. Our Father in heaven, praise you, Father, that you are greater than any earthly dad. Thank you that all of our earthly dad's failures are not a surprise to you. And we can call you Abba, Father. Thank you for receiving us. Thank you for hearing our prayers even right now. Praise Jesus. You can do that. In fact, I highly recommend you do that, by the way. Take this home. And if you don't have the Lord's Prayer, Disciples Prayer memorized, go through it phrase by praise and pray like that. So let me give you a few comments on each of these prayers. Maybe they'll help you as you go. The first couple verses, the point I want you to fill in on your blank is praise God in your focus. Praise God in your focus. Verses 9 and 10, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To start off, we, Jesus has prayed to your Father. Why, why should we pray to our Father? Well, the Bible gives us several reasons. Three of them are this. He is personal. God can hear your prayers. Right there in Psalm 66, 18 and 19. God is sovereign. God can do something about your prayers. Have you ever thought about this? Why pray to a God who's sovereign, who's in control of everything? Because he's the only one who can answer your prayers. That's the God you pray to. And God is love. He longs to give us more than our prayers. And you find dozens of promises throughout Scripture with regards to this. You and I should learn, we should take time to pray because we have a loving, sovereign, personal Father 
who is more than willing and able to take your requests and use them as only he knows how he does to glorify himself. Your Father in heaven is waiting for you and me to humble ourselves and to take time and to take effort to actually pray so that we will learn to pray. And Jesus continues, this personal father deserves your respect, which is exactly what we mean when we say, hallowed be your name or hallowed be your name. What does this mean? What is hallowed be your name? We don't talk like that anymore. It can mean a couple of things. And the first one, I would say, God, we are asking that God will act in such a way that people will recognize him as glorious and will worship him. We want God to act in such a way that people will say, man, what a great God. And of course, God does this. One place where he promises that he will do it in the future is Habakkuk 2.14, where he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Oh my goodness, I love that. And how is it that they're going to have this knowledge? As the waters cover the sea. That is a promise, my friends. And when you pray, hallowed be your name, you are praying for this to take place. You are praying, God, come, make this difference. I think the second thing that this phrase can mean is we're asking that God will act in such a way that he will directly bring about worship in the hearts of those who trust him. We're asking, God, change my heart. God, change my father's heart. God, change the heart of someone so that they will recognize how glorious you are. And I love this because this is, I think, exactly the point of Ezekiel's promise when he, in his statement of the new covenant, where he says this, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Because God's word makes it specifically clear that he will do these things, you and I can take the time to pray for God to bring these about for our good and for his glory. You and I can pray that God will do something big in the world and let us be a part of that. We could pray that God would return. Amen. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And pray that God would do something big in the lives of someone you love. Hallowed be your name. Allow the glory of your name to be experienced in all the world, Father. May people recognize that you are more important than World Cup soccer. Maranatha, or hallowed be your name, Father, allow the glory of your name to be experienced in my dad's heart. I'd be willing to bet everybody in this room has someone that they love that they wish would experience the glory of God in their heart, that the eyes would see, they would no longer be blinded to the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. 
And in verse 10 continues, we have repeated often central to Jesus's and Paul's good news is this idea of the kingdom of God. And we're not going to reiterate all that we've said about that. But what I want to emphasize is the kingdom of God is God in power. It is God moving to bring about his will. In Matthew 12, 28, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Remember, we've gone back to 417 many times. It's as close as the tips of your fingers. And then Paul makes clear, he says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And in that instance, he's daring the demons to come and mess with them. He says, yeah, is that what you want? You wait. God will show up. When you pray your kingdom come, you are praying that God will bring it about that he gets done what he wants done. Now, we could mean that publicly, God make your glory shine as the waters cover the sea, or we can mean that privately, God change the hearts of the people that I love. When you pray your kingdom come, you are asking that God's will be done in your city, in your home, in your church, wherever you might be. And by the way, I want to make a side note here. Your faith in Jesus is personal. It is between you and the Lord. But nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it make any kind of concession that your faith ought to be private. The people who are around you ought to know that you trust the promises of God for you in Christ. They ought to know without having to wonder what it is you believe or make some idea of what they think that you think. Make it clear. Your faith should be personal, but it is not private. And when we ask that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are not making some pious patter. We're not just mouthing words because Jesus said so 2,000 years ago. When you pray your will be done, you better be serious about that. In fact, if you're going to pray the Lord's Prayer at all, you better think, what am I asking the Lord to do in my life? Are you willing that God's will be done in your life? It might mean suffering. Are you willing that God's will be done in your life? It might mean waiting. Are you willing that you might, in fact, lose something important to you because you are asking that His will be done? One of the most famous verses that people quote, they bat around all the time is Philippians 4.13. Well, we ought to look at what verse 11 says. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He's in prison for crying out loud. Of course he's in need. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Oh, that I could say that more often. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ 
who strengthens me. I can remain praising Jesus through the tough times. And I can remain praising Jesus through the good times. And anyone in this room who has lived long enough to experience very much of life, we know it's very much harder to praise God in the good times than it is the bad times. Because we forget about God. It's a parable and part of the United States. So I recommend you start this in private. Start this in your prayer closet that Jesus talks about. Begin not in public, not praying with other people, but build some confidence praising Jesus while you are going through your hard moments. Because it's going to be tough. And you're going to need to take that time in prayer to learn how to pray. You're going to have to take time so that you really believe that God is going to come through because you have seen him come through. The second idea is get paired up with someone who has suffered. Get together with someone who has suffered and say, would you teach me to pray? How is it that you got through that? Tell me your story. And sometimes just hearing that story will spark that confidence in your heart that will enable you to pray because no one learns to pray except by praying. You will learn, as we just said, you will learn how to praise God and you pray when you pray. And you will learn how to pray God-centered petitions when you pray. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. Jesus says, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want you to note that in verses 9 and 10, we were focused 100% on God. Everything there was all about God. In the second half, we still focus on God, but we're focusing on God in such ways that we're asking Him to meet our needs. I want you to note something else critical, and that is that He says, Give us our daily bread. He says, give, Forgive us of our debts. The emphasis is not on private. It's not merely on me. Your and my prayers need to be inclusive of others around us. I'll tell you, one of the most important times of prayer in my life is the year I lived in Germany. And when I was living in Germany, I had a lot of my focus on praying for specific people back here in the States and with me. And I often found that I would get to the end of my time of prayer. And at that point I was journaling. I don't do that anymore. But I'd get to the end of my prayer times and I, well, what did I need to pray about myself? Well, I'm tired. Time to go to sleep. Because I was focused on others. It's amazing how that works. I highly recommend it to you. Pray for both us 
and then pray for me. Now, notice he says, pray for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. I don't think he's merely talking about food. I think he's talking about all of our daily necessities. I would include the air we breathe and the water we drink. And we're asking God to give us these necessities. Because whatever work we do and we must work, it is ultimately God who gives us our needs. So the first thing we need to do is trust. We trust. Psalm 145, 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. We must trust. And we must work. Second Thessalonians 3.10 For when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Ouch. Moving on. Jesus continues, you must also forgive. Matthew 6, 12 says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. What Jesus says here is earth shatteringly important. This is crucial to understand. In fact, it's so crucial to understand that I'm going to take a time out and next week we're going to preach on 12, then 14 and 15, and we're going to do a week on forgiveness. Uh, I did a sermon like this many years ago, but I have found that, listen, Everyone who comes into my office for any kind of counseling, every single person who has a belly button has had some painful issues in their life and they need to learn to forgive. So we are going to take next week and talk about that. So stay tuned. Let's continue. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, (laughs) I I read several commentaries on this, and they're all split. Some of them say evil, some of them say evil one. So you know what? I decided I don't know which one it is. But you know what I do know? I need protection from my own evil tendencies. Do I get an amen for anybody on that? And I need protection from Satan. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? So let's just go with that, all right? Right? Because we need that protection. Now, what I do know is that if I am praying that God not lead me into temptation, that brings up a problem. Because James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, the word translated tempted, that word is also translated to test. And if you go through your study questions, you'll see a couple of passages, uh, James 1, uh, 12 through 14, I think, and also uh, Romans 5, 3 through 5. And you'll see this understanding of how God uses testing how God uses 
bad things in our lives to mold us to be the men and women of God he has created us to be. But the point, I think, here is that we are asking Jesus. We are saying to God, we want your assistance. We need your help so that when we are facing whatever circumstance we are facing, we want it to be a test. We want it to advance our faith as opposed to hinder us a temptation, which is all about what Satan wants to do. Now, I want you also to notice how God-centered that request is. This idea, this understanding of facing our temptations and asking God to come to us is what is called in other places of the Bible, fearing the Lord. Now, hang with me here for a second. Because the fear of the Lord is that condition of heart that desires above all else, more than anything, it desires to be right with God. And fearing the Lord means that whatever else there might be to be afraid of, that is nothing compared to getting on the wrong side of God. We should be more afraid of falling on the wrong side of God than we should be afraid of having our rights tromped on. We should be more afraid of offending God than our health falling away. We should be more afraid of offending God than having whatever private lust or covetousness that you have never getting met. Because there's a lot of things that we desire that simply won't happen. But if we are afraid of offending God, if we long to be putting our focus on Him and glorifying Him, then these other things that may very well happen become less important. And I do think it's significant that the New Testament, not the Old Testament, but the New Testament uses the word fear as opposed to this idea of reverence or awe. And I think it's exactly because we should be afraid of falling on the wrong side of God. Now, I'm a good Baptist. God's grace saves us. We are saved by grace through faith. But if we are to live for an audience of one, if we are to have our focus centered on Him, then we need to decide not to put our focus on other things. And that, I believe, is exactly what we're talking about here. So let's use Jesus' example. He's talking about in this passage exercising your righteousness or doing your righteous deeds, depending on your translation, doing the good things that you do. And he gives the examples of giving your money, praying and fasting and using this particular one. How is it that we live for an audience of one by praying? Well, first of all, it's not using prayer as a lever to move God or man. It is not about manipulation. Prayer, instead, we use prayer in such a way that God becomes more important to us than anything, even people thinking well of us. 
perhaps especially that. But what happens? We assume that God is not going to answer our prayers, so we just don't pray. That's, that really is what's going on. When, when you and I aren't praying, it's because we have decided God's not going to answer anyway, so why waste my time? I'm not doing... Let's get on with the real work. Have you ever thought that? I have. Instead, we live for that audience of one and we pray because no one ever learned to pray without praying. I would say that God does not show himself to be a miraculous provider as a God who provides miracles because we don't expect him to provide miracles. We don't depend on him to come through when only he can come through. Aren't you tired of living in the school of hard knocks? Aren't you tired of not having God answer your prayers because you're not praying? Jesus is serious when he says, ye have not because ye ask not. So ask. No one ever learned to pray without praying. And that is how you and I can live for an audience of one. Lord Almighty, once again, we're humbled because there's so much here that we skim the surface of. And Lord, we desperately need you to come and send your spirit among us so that we can be men and women of prayer. Give us grace, Jesus, as we seek you in prayer this week. Help us to glorify your name. We love you, Jesus. Amen.